0: the important follow-up question is okay how important is that event to you is this your a race or is this just a is this just a race that is coming up um that you know doesn't matter or it's just a training race
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Matchbox Podcast presented by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host Adam Savin, and I've got the full crew with me in the studio today. Dylan is back from his race trip out west for the first event in the Lifetime Grand Prix Series. We hear a little bit about him from his race at Sea Otter before getting into the discussion topic for the week: event prioritization and how to plan out your race calendar. Also, we finally have our first listener question, so stay tuned to the end for that. As always, if you like what you hear, share this with your friends and leave us a five star review. If you want us to cover a training-related topic in a future episode, you can drop us an email at info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled The Matchbox Podcast, or send us a DM on the Ignition Instagram page. All right, let's get into it. Hey, hey, what's up, guys? How's it going? Good. Good. Got the uh, fully loaded crew today. So I don't know if you guys have uh, read the show notes at all for the the show, but um, I, I always call Drew and Dylan our guests for the week. But I feel like we got to change that, because you guys are definitely more routine than guests at this point. We we should bring on some guests, though, and we will. mix we'll, it up. We'll bring some guests on, but uh, this seems like the regular crew. Like, last mm-hmm. week, Dylan wasn't here, and it seemed, uh,
2: yeah, we were missing something
1: for sure. Yeah,
2: I was sorry to miss it. I was on a plane <laughs> to California. Missing no those. worries. Good-looking, that good-looking flow. All of us <laughs> just wear hats. <laughs> right. Yeah, we do have a new... Uh,
1: YouTube channel for all the listeners. If you want to look at our faces and listen to some snippets from the podcast, um, you can find us on the ignition coach co YouTube channel. Check mm-hmm. that out. thumbnails
0: nails
2: um, need some work, but we'll get there. We're getting there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and Dylan hasn't, get, he hasn't been, man, he hasn't stopped giving me a hard time all day <laughs> about that.
1: Um, so Hey, this week, exciting stuff we got a listener question. Mm, so first someone, uh, someone wrote in um, question on like splitting long endurance rides into two day shorter workouts. So stay tuned for uh, you know, a little segment on that at the end of the show. We're going to answer that question in a little bit more detail. Uh, anyone out there who's got a question for us, uh, feel free to send us an email or direct message on Instagram, however you want to reach us. Um, just find the ignition coach co website. Um, and, also today we're going to get into the topic of event prioritization and kind of how to plan out your season. Um, but before we do that, let's uh, let's hit a little bit of what you're training for, uh, Andrew. Let's let's have you kick us off.
3: Yeah. So as our uh, regular listeners know, I'm I'm still currently building up to tour of the Gila um, two weeks from today. So um, as you might remember, I uh, was planning on going to altitude and. Um, I'm in sunny Boulder, Colorado now at 5,500 feet. So, um, a little bit of staged, uh, acclimation is is kind of the strategy I'm employing whereby you slowly kind of move up to higher and higher elevations so as to not impact your training as much as you kind of move up. So next week I'll go a little bit higher. And then the, the event or the Gila, um, kind of varies in elevation between five and 7,000 feet. So I'm trying to be acclimated to about 7,000 feet by the end. Um, and so just to kind of give everybody an idea of like what my training looks like right now, um, I have kind of my, my key workout of the week today, um, after this podcast, and I'm going to be doing three by 20 minutes sub threshold, sort of in the kind of top of tempo, low threshold zone. Um, and the idea there is that I'm building capacity at that intensity, and I'm also trying to extend my time to exhaustion at at around threshold. Um, Reason being, that's one of the major demands of Tour of the Gila. It's a lot of kind of long, steady climbs, and um, it's going to be even more specific today because it'll be the first time I'm doing uh, that workout at altitude, um, at least at a higher altitude than where I live in Asheville. And so, just like a quick tip or a thing that I'm, I'm going to be doing to make sure I execute that at the proper intensity is I'm really going to be relying on heart rate there. So, you know, I've done some combination of that workout for a few weeks now. And so I sort of know, you know, at sea level or at, at 2,500 feet where I live in Asheville what my heart rate is. So rather than pacing by power, I'm going to be pacing by heart rate to account for, you know, the lesser amount of uh, oxygen that I'm dealing with here. So um, should be fun. Should be interesting. The hope is that, uh, you know, power is only maybe 5% lower, which would be an indication that I'm already pretty acclimated to this altitude. Um, but it could be as low as 10% less, you know, if I'm unacclimated. Awesome. And can you remind us all what uh, tour gila
1: entails? Um, I know it's a stage race, but how many days is it? And um, what do each of the stages look like?
3: Yeah. So tour the Gila is a, Um five day stage race, so it's it's three road stages, a long kind of like 30 to 40 minute TT and a criterium. Um and the first stage is is pretty flat, you go through a valley, but it finishes on a long climb, right? So that, that that climb at the end is gonna be like a a major determinant of where you finish and you know where you end up in GC. The second day is actually sort of the opposite, it's climbing heavy up front. Um, and then if you're sort of a sprinter like myself, if you can kind of make it over the climb with the group, and, and this is like, you know, to give everybody like a more specific idea, it's like an hour long, um, stair stepping climb. Um, so it's maybe kind of actually broken up into like three 20 minute climbs. So that's going to be super kind of, my workout is going to be super specific to that. Um, cause that's, that's really maybe a day where there's a good opportunity for me. So, you know, if I can improve my ability at threshold um you know and not lose too much at altitude to make it over um with the group and maybe even be like the last sprinty boy left in the group so that would be great um then you do the time trial um like i said 30 40 minutes you do a criterium the next day and the final day is the dreaded gila monster so that's a uh, hundred miles eleven thousand feet of climbing just you know, tons and tons of huge climbs. And so, um, given, given my, you know, rider profile, this will likely be a day where I'm, I'm sort of working for maybe like our GC guy. So my, my job there will just be to, you know, maybe ride the front or kind of sit in the wind to protect him and get him to, you know, the base of maybe the final climb in a good position, um, keep him hydrated and fueled and, you know, using as little energy as possible. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, the whole thing is pretty daunting cause it's a lot of climbing. I'm not a climber. It's at altitude. I, I'm not from altitude. So, um, a couple of challenges, but should be, should be fun, should make me a better rider. And it's, it's the, the first race of the season for me. So it'll be a heck of a training stimulus and hopefully, you know, bring me some, some good legs when it comes time to, uh, do the races that I'm maybe a bit more suited for. Awesome. Yeah. Good stuff. Drew,
1: how about you, man? What's training looking like these days?
2: This week's a rest week. So pretty chill. Um, just finished up like a three week threshold block. So I was building up the threshold, um, just to like, I mean, I guess if you guys want some top secret numbers, um, (laughs) I was doing, I was doing a lot of these eight minute thresholds where I was really trying to hit hit my threshold or even maybe a hair over so for those i was doing eight minutes at 375 and those felt really good um i had never done like eight minute efforts before so it was pretty cool Uh, and it seemed like they worked I, i felt pretty good at the last race i did last weekend uh but rest week this week so um still riding and the volume will be a little less but just less intensity overall and then i'll race there's a there's a crit this saturday up at my alma mater marion university um it's basically going to be like 15 marion riser, riders versus like 10 texas roadhouse riders and so it's going to be like a two up team royale so that would be fun that'll be just a training race that we'll try to just go and smash make hard so yeah uh, and then next week i'll jump into over unders
1: i hope you come away super proud of the fact that you beat up on a bunch of college students
2: yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> oh, it's because they're fast, man. I was <laughs> they saying
1: They have more time to train than probably all
2: of us. I have the feeling of like Adam Sandler uh, <laughs> and the and the Longest Yard, but I hope it doesn't go the way that movie goes because we definitely are the the guards in that movie. Like we're <laughs> definitely the definitely strong at the end. <laughs> what? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, it's just that the the prisoners beat the guards when it was supposed to be like a tune-up game for the guards to just smash the prisoners. So like roadhouse is going there thinking we're about to just smash all these college kids, but it would be pretty embarrassing if they gave us a run for our money.
1: (laughs) Dude, uh, for context, can you like, what does a typical training volume look like for you? And then compared to what your recovery week volume looks like.
2: Yeah. The last three weeks of when I was doing that threshold was between like 12 and 15 hours, which is probably a little on the low end, but that's just how life is, I guess. Um, and then this week is probably going to be somewhere around 10 to 12 hours. So just a couple hours less. But I'm still hitting the gym. Like I still did a, a, an intense gym session yesterday. So I still do that on my rest weeks. I just take out all my bike intensity mm-hmm. for about five days. So, cool. yeah, like to, like today I'm still planning to go do like a three to four hour endurance ride. Since the race this weekend, it's in two days. Since it's not that big of a deal, I don't mind going into it with a little fatigue. And today's just going to be a low key endurance ride. So the weather's supposed to be super nice. So that's kind of why.
0: You know, I think there's a, uh, I think there's a Siler study where they compare four by four minutes, four by eight minutes, and four by 16 minutes. Mm -hmm. And four by eight minutes came out on top. I would have to, I'd have to go back and look at the study to confirm, but. Styler's a big proponent of the the eight minute efforts.
3: I I will say though, that maybe like a possible mechanism for that yielding the most improvement is that um, I guess it depends on like what your test is, but I really think of four by eight minutes as a great way to teach to the test, so to speak. Right. mm -hmm. So like if you do a lot of four by eight minute efforts, that's probably the intensity that you can do your 20 minute power test at. And so mm-hmm. like if you're really looking to improve your 20 minute power not necessarily improve your threshold per se um, i think that that's maybe the best way to to really kind of like build capacity and uh, ability at like 105% of threshold yeah,
0: yeah i would agree with that i'd have to go go back and look at what they measure i mean they measure they it's you know they probably measure a couple different things um, but in order to say that this this type of interval uh, is superior to the other two types of intervals. I'd have to go back and look at what they're measuring. Um, Usually studies are not doing, uh, I mean, sometimes they do, but usually they're not doing 20 minute tests.
2: From an Mm. anecdotal standpoint, I did way better than I expected in the race I did last weekend. And it was right after I did those intervals for (laughs) two or three weeks. So if that's all I need to be convinced, I'm convinced. (laughs) Um, cool well so i i just i was not
0: on the podcast last week because i was flying out to sea otter in california um it was the first round of the lifetime grand prix series which is what i've been training for i wasn't training specifically for sea otter um i would say that the race i'm trying to peak for is unbound um which is like a month and a half away um, so my training this week is uh, the first part of the week. I was, I was doing some shorter endurance rides, not really too much intensity, trying to recover from the effort at sea otter. Cause even though s- the sea otter race was only three hours, which isn't particularly long for compared to the other races that I do, uh, it seems like it took a lot out of me because it was, uh, it was very high intensity. Um, and it was a lot of traveling to get back. So, I I haven't done any intensity since I got back, but I think tomorrow I'll probably do a big tempo day. Um, It'll be a lot of hours on the bike, probably anywhere between six and eight hours. And then there's probably going to be two hours, maybe three hours of tempo thrown in. And I might, I might try to do a hard 10 minute threshold effort at the very end of the ride. And that's just sort of a very, unbound specific workout um at unbound it's it's kind of just like who can hold tempo the longest it seems like so um that'll probably be tomorrow um if i have good legs which my legs feel good right now so it's probably what's going to happen and then over the weekend saturday i'll probably be a little bit shorter endurance ride and sunday will probably be a, a bit longer endurance ride
1: so, Dylan, so um, Unbound for you, like, target time's probably close to 10 hours, right? Yeah, um, I would say so. I've what, never what, gone under 11. I think
0: the last the last year I did it was, like, 11.15. Um, and I think that if I have a clean race without mechanicals, I can go under 11 and be in the 10-hour
1: range. Okay. Yeah, and this year's probably arguably going to be the strongest field Unbound mm-hmm. has seen. So the group will be going a little faster and further together. Um, but for, for you, like, so goal race time, 10 hours, you know, maybe we'll call it 11 hours is what you're preparing for. What will your longest training ride be time-wise leading up to that?
0: Yeah, probably probably eight hours. Uh, maybe there will be a nine-hour one in there. But the thing is when, what I've found for myself is that when, when the rides get over eight hours they take so long to recover from that it's taking away from the rest of your training um i mean if you do a a nine or ten hour ride it's kind of it's it's almost like a full week before you can do any intensity again so the longest ride i've done so far this year i think was seven hours uh and i i could easily see myself going up to eight hours possibly tomorrow um but I don't see myself going much over that.
1: Cool. Yeah. And that makes sense. You don't want to compromise too much of your training, uh, you know, the subsequent days. Um, will you, will you try and plan that? Like, you know, say your longest ride of eight to nine hours, maybe like two weeks before the event or something. How, how will you plan that?
0: Yeah. So I'm, I've got a gravel race in Texas three weeks before unbound, And I, and part of the, part of training for unbound is heat acclimating because that race is so hot and you're out there for so long that being acclimated to the heat is, is very important. I'd say it's arguably just as important as altitude acclimation for going to a high altitude race. So it's just not that hot here in, uh, the Brevard Asheville area in May, um, I mean, last year I was wearing winter clothes while I was riding in 70 degrees, and I mean, I was sweating more, but I I just don't think it got the job done. So I'm planning to stay in Texas for three weeks before Unbound, and I'm going to stay in South Texas, and hopefully it's going to be 100 degrees every day, and I'm going (laughs) to try to ride at the hottest part of the day. Long hours, just just bake in the heat uh, is the goal. And if I could get in an eight-hour ride in a hundred degree heat in Texas and feel good, even if it's just at zone two pace that, that gives me a lot of confidence that I'll feel good for unbound.
3: Well, and I think, I think that's a lot of it. You know, I coach a lot of athletes who are training for, you know, we call them ultra distance events. And from my perspective for a lot of these people, you know, maybe the biggest thing with doing that kind of six, eight, nine hour ride prior to their event, depending on their goal time is, is psychological. Right. Like mm-hmm. I think for a lot of them, the big thing is, is building confidence, um, not just in themselves, but in like their protocols for eating and drinking and all these sorts of things. And also just kind of seeing, seeing what the body does, you know, that far in. Cause yeah. the one thing I'm not sure of is, you know, um, you're training for a 10 hour event, you do one single eight hour ride. I don't know how much like actual adaptation you're getting from that single eight hour ride. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm
0: -hmm. yeah it's uh i mean to be honest with you it's not really an area that's been heavily studied because we don't put people on the trainer for six to ten hours and uh in a lab and study them so i've heard a lot of speculation like you never no matter what you're training for you don't need to go over six hours i've heard that said um i don't know if that's just people's theories it sounds like it's just people's theories because i don't i don't see any research to back it up so when you get into these like these extreme races where it's very hard to actually study um, how the body adapts to a race like that, you you kind of just run into people giving their best educated guess, right?
1: Well, and I think there's a difference between uh, just trying to finish an event and trying mm-hmm. to optimize for that event, because you'll you'll also hear the argument that um, you know for. Eight or ten hour events, like you can get by if you're only training up to two hours. If you, you know, if you're time crunch and you've only got eight hours a week, and you can only do that four, you know, across four or five days, and maybe your longest ride is two or three hours, yeah, you probably get to the finish line. But would you be better off doing longer rides? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so right. it depends what your goal is. I mean, Dylan, your your goal at Unbound is not to finish. You, you know, you can finish that event. Your goal is to try and you know get close to that top group. Um, mm-hmm and, you know, be towards the front of the lifetime Grand Prix, uh, event racers.
3: Right. Well, another thing there too, is like training capacity, right? Like, you know, to Dylan's point, you know, if you give some athletes, you know, who are maybe working on like an eight to 10 hour weekly volume, you know, a single eight hour ride leading up to their event, the fatigue might not be worth the effect or to throw an ADM out there. The juice might not be worth the squeeze. <laughs>
0: Good one. Um, yeah, completely agree. So I would say that that the point at which the juice is not worth the squeeze is different for different athletes, kind of like yeah. you were just saying. So for a person training eight hours a week, an eight hour ride that's probably over over that line, right? I, I would say that for me in the volume that I train and my training capacity, uh I'm putting that line at 8 hours. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's correct, but that's that's
1: my theory for myself if that makes sense. Yeah, and in for context, you're you're training probably 25 hours a week ish. I to be honest, I've
0: actually bumped down my volume this year. So I I would say for the past 2 years, 25 to 30 hours a week during the base season was pretty typical for me. And this year it's been more like 20 ish. Uh, and I think the main reason why I've decided to do that is because I often find myself feeling chronically fatigued mid season. And it could just be because I do too much racing, but I think there's also a component that by that point, my body is just tired of training so much. So I'm going to see, I'm going to see if bumping down the volume a little bit helps with that. And so far I've felt really good and my power numbers have been great. And, and so, um, I guess right now I've sort of proven to myself, I don't necessarily need that volume in order to perform optimally.
3: Well, and here's, here's kind of an interesting take on that. Um, you know, we talk about like different levels of periodization, right? Like micro, macro mesocycles, you know, Mm -hmm. so, like the weekly periodization, the the monthly, the yearly, you know, I, I think, you know, the best coaches are sort of thinking about at least if they're working with athletes for whom they have like a, like a, like a huge goal, like a really high aspiration. You also have to think about like the periodization across years. And so what mm-hmm. I sort of wonder is if, you know, maybe you weren't racing to your absolute best when you were doing those 30 hour weeks in previous years Mm-hmm. but maybe having those weeks in your legs now and then sort of almost doing like a multi-year taper <laughs> could really, really be the secret sauce. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope. Let's hope. I
0: mean, my, I, I will say that my power numbers this year are higher than they have ever been. Interestingly enough though, I haven't won a race yet this year, which is very unusual for me. I usually, uh, I usually clean up at the local races early season, um, so I don't know. The results are not necessarily reflecting how strong I feel and
1: how strong the numbers suggest that I am. But I think uh, resident ignition coach Scott McGill would say otherwise. <laughs> what do you mean, dude? He he beat you in that gravel race last year. Uh, I
0: dude, I I didn't race Scott McGill in the gravel race last year. That was oh, a, that's I right. You, a, were,
1: you were you had a concussion. That's right. Scott right. beat me in another okay. Oh, rice. Scott beat true. Okay. Yeah. I gotcha. Take it back.
2: And yeah. then saying, so, a so month sp-
1: later, Dylan beat me in another ground. <laughs>
0: so these guys. I think, just- I think <laughs> last year, and this is last year, and this is actually usually how my early season goes, just because the early season is usually just local races. Um, I usually win like the first three or four races that I do. Um so, I don't know. Not off to a good streak there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, winning isn't and, everything.
0: I, I guess. And and I will say this. This is, this is not an excuse. This is me needing to work on my sprint finish. But I will say that um, every single race that I've done this year, whether I was sprinting for the win or, or sprinting for a minor place, has come down to a sprint finish. Every single one. And uh, I haven't won any of them.
1: So... <laughs>
3: We can work on that.
1: <laughs> um, so Dylan, so going back to you, uh, you were talking about uh, performances. Can you give us a little insight into what you did this past weekend?
0: Yeah. So like I said, it was the, it was the Seattle classic, which this year was an 80 K mountain bike race. Uh, at least which is for, 50 miles. Know, yeah. 50 miles. Um, uh, at least that was the event. You know, they have a ton of events at Sea Otter, but that was the event that was going to um, count for the Lifetime Grand Prix, which is the whole reason I'm going out to Sea Otter in the first place. I would not fly to California for a race this early in the season when I've just finished my base training and not trained for it if it wasn't uh, part of the series. But so um, it was the probably the first time in f- four or five years that I've done an XC style start. And what I mean by that is that you, the gun goes off and you are sprinting as hard as you can to get into the single track in the best position possible, because it's like a minute maybe of sprinting before everybody slots into their place in the single track. And then you can't pass much. Um, I don't miss that style of start at all. That was always my weak point when I tr- was trying to be an XC racer. Uh, I felt like I did okay. I think I was in the top 20 going into the single track and uh, pretty much held that position for most of the race. I got in with a good group. Uh, I think Alex Howells, Taylor Ledeen, Stefano Barberi, uh, Jeff Kabush. I mean, it was a bunch of really strong guys, which it was actually important. Uh, at that race because there were open gravel sections where we could kind of rotate. The average speed was really high. I think 17 miles an hour for a mountain bike race, which is, you know, for you mountain bikers listening, you know, that's, that's super fast average speed for a mountain bike race. Um, On the last lap, uh, it was a two lap race on the last lap on the final climb. I was on the verge of cramping. So I had to let, I had to let Stefano Taylor and Alex Howes. Uh, I just had to let them go because I, I felt like if I had gone any h- harder, I would have locked up, and I didn't want that to happen. Um, and then I I came across a line in seventeenth, which you know, seventeenth doesn't seem like anything special, but given the competition that was out there, I'm I'm pretty happy with that.
2: What about uh, what about go to your blow, man? Like. Why you I was just, about to blow, dude. I mean, uh, I was so close. I, w- no.
0: I would consider locking up and cramping blowing. So, <laughs> what, what place does that put you at for the Lifetime Series? I'm in 13th. So we were having this discussion. I, I think probably my goal for the Lifetime Series is going to be to get into the top 10 because that's that's in the money. And also, I mean, top 10 amongst that pool of athletes I'd be super proud of. Um, and I think I, what I'm hoping is that, uh, like the mountain bike guys just crushed at sea otter as expected. Keegan one, Russell second, um, and, and a bunch of other mountain bike guys after that. Uh, and the gravel, the, the, the gravel specific riders didn't do super well. Um, so I, what i'm hoping is that if i can just be consistent in both the mountain bike races and the gravel races um you know i can i can kind of play the consistency game game and i can get into that top 10 like maybe there's some riders that did super well at sea otter that don't do super well at unbound or there's riders who's got who are going to do super well at unbound that didn't do well at sea otter hopefully i can just i can just be right there at at every event
1: yeah so dylan so you you talked about how you, you came into Sea Otter basically on the tail end of your base season, mm-hmm. um, which Sea Otter for you, I mean, this is part of the Lifetime Grand Prix, so it's a big event. Like it's not an event that you just didn't care about. Um, so obviously mm-hmm. you, you were still trying to go and have a, a good result there. Um, but coming in off of base fitness, you know, se- seems seems kind of crazy for for that scale of an event. So I think that's a good transition for us to get into the topic for this week, which is, how do we prioritize events across an entire season? Um, so for you, you've yep. got six events that are part of the lifetime Grand Prix. Uh, they're all weighted equally as far as points go. Um, mm-hmm. Spread across what is it, like seven or eight months or something? Is the is the the season? Uh, I think it's seven I think it's, seven months. Is I think it's how long six the months. Season is? six months. Six months. Think it's six months. Yeah. Um, you know, so why why is it important for you to prioritize specific events um, versus you know like why, why not just come into Sea Outer, Guns a Blazin', um, you know, full race fitness? Um, right. You know, I, th- I think that's what we want to get into today is, is how, how do we look at a season as a whole and pinpoint certain events that we want to peak for and then other events that might still be top priority, but, um, you know, maybe still coming into those. Uh, not quite as 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 fit as we would for the peak of our season how how do you approach that and and specifically for you dylan we'll start with you How, how are you approaching this lifetime series for for this year right so so for a six
0: event series where the races are spread out pretty evenly so it's six months and each month and and each event is pretty much separated by one month um it's, I, I would not suggest that anybody try to peak six times in one year. Uh, I think that is probably going to go badly if you attempt to do that. So my thinking was I should probably try to peak for the races that I, I feel I have uh, an advantage at or, or suit my skill set the most. And generally, I do better when races are longer Relative to my competition, so the three longest races in the series in terms of time it takes you to complete them are going to be Unbound, Leadville, and Big Sugar. Um, so I chose, and and they're also spaced nicely apart. There, it's you know, it's a two month gap between each one. Um, so I I decided to try to try to focus on those three. Um, it wasn't hard to pick unbound because that, that whether unbound was in the series or not, that was going to be one of my main focuses this year was that race. Um, but I think with, with the two month gap between races, it gives me time to take a week off the bike after, after each event and then build back up, uh, for the next event. So I guess what I would say is that a lot of people and, and I have people uh message me um saying I've got an event in I've got an event in a month, how do I train for it? And then the important follow-up question is, okay, how important is that event to you? Is this your A race or is this just a is this just a race that is coming up um that you know doesn't matter or it's just a training race or something? I I think a lot of people, you see this happen um, with races, and this is why I was telling Drew that if we ever put on a race, it needs to be the first one on the calendar. Um, People get very excited for the first race on the calendar, and then it seems like race participation tapers off throughout the year. Um, And you can see that in people's training, too. Um, They get very excited for whatever the first race is, and they they come out guns a-blazing, and that's – and that's the race that they want to do really well at, and then it's like the rest of the season they're just kind of drudging along. And maybe the really important race, like for example, nationals, uh, mountain bike nationals is is midsummer. Cyclocross nationals is at the end of cyclocross season. Like that's a very important race, and people are there's a bunch of people that are burnt out by the time they get to that. So, I think the important thing to think about is is look at the calendar. And and figure out which races are important to you that that you want to do well at, and it doesn't necessarily or shouldn't necessarily be just the first, just the next race on the calendar or the first race on the calendar.
1: Yeah, so <clears throat> let's get into that a little bit more, and you know maybe each of us can go into a little bit of anecdotal experience with how we work with our athletes on planning a race season and prioritization of events, um, but like. You know, like what Dylan, what you're talking about is like, you know, prioritization is I would say is very individualistic. Um it it Mm -hmm. depends on each participant and and what their goals are for you know the season and for some of those races. But how do how do you guys approach that with your athletes? Um, you know, looking at a season, or maybe maybe the calendar is clean. Maybe they only have two events on their calendar that those are the biggest two events. How do you fill the rest of the calendar with some of these other events, um, and, then assign, uh, you know, priorities to, to those events.
3: So uh, I'll jump in here and say that like the two biggest variables for me, like when I, you know, I'm consulting an athlete or even thinking about my own season is one timing, right. Which is to say, you know, to use myself as an example, you know, if I race Cross, you know, and I finish January one, I think it's, it's important that I pick a race that's distant enough out that I have time to go through a full periodization. So I don't think that I can be my best and get the most out of a periodization until let's say May or June. So regardless of, you know, what race is maybe most important to me in terms of like, you know, do I think I can win? Um, Is it well suited for me? It has to be sort of at a sufficiently far distance that I can get in enough training to truly achieve a peak, right? So for me, you know, like I said, May or June is kind of, um, you know, when that might be. And I I think that that's sort of, for your first peak, um, from the start of training until that event, I like to budget five months, ideally. And then once that five months is over, you do your peak event, maybe you flutter the form a bit. Um, you can have some really good races kind of in that same region. So something that I like to kind of think about is density of racing. So if you're a criterium racer, um, you know, and you're like myself, and you you start training January 1, that's when you begin base, Um, you know, and you want to target like May or June, that's perfect because there's races like Air Force, Tulsa, U.S. Nationals, all in kind of quick succession. So, you know, if we can taper into the first event there and sort of achieve a peak, you're going to hold on to that form for a couple of races. And so we get some really good bang for the buck. Um, and I've also noticed, you know, if I'm working with an athlete I haven't worked with before, for instance, the amount of taper you need is going to differ a little bit athlete to athlete. And so I actually kind of like to have like a couple of um, important events right around the same timeline, because, you know, maybe the the first event doesn't go as well as you expected. Maybe you even have a mechanical and so then we kind of have a backup. And so I, I might list a couple of races in, a, in, in one period as eight races. Um, but ideally, um, and this is the other variable here, is you want to target races that you think you can do well at. I think that's really important. It, it makes the goals, I think, a little bit more clear cut. It helps you evaluate you know, whether or not you were successful. Um, and you're going to have the best potential to you know, do well there and, and have made the most of your training. So, um, you know, for me as more of a sprinter, as a really glycolytic rider, that's probably going to be, you know, a criterium, um, or like maybe a punchy road race. Um, but if I, you know, if for instance, I were to target the race that I'm training for now is my race tour of the Gila. Um, that's a race that, you know, I'm probably never going to win. Right. And so, you know, if I have my very, very best performance there, if I were to have treated that as an a race um, you know, it's, it's a little bit hard to evaluate success, right? Cause no matter what I do, I'm probably going to finish, you know, somewhere in the middle, you know, maybe I do well on a particular stage, but overall, um, it's, it's a little bit more gray. Whereas if I target a criterion and I'm my very best, maybe I have a chance to win. And so I, I think another component of this is like choosing an appropriate goal, because if you've done five months of work, um, you know, you, you want to make sure that the goal that you have is something that's measurable and that you can achieve. Um, but is also like a high enough aspiration that it's going to be fulfilling if you accomplish it.
2: Yeah, I was going to mention goals. Um, because for goal setting is a huge thing that helps with just like overall training. Um, and the reason that is, is, or one of the prerequisites for goal setting is that they have to be personally motivating. So like, if I've got an athlete and I say, well, I think you should train for these two races. If they aren't, if they aren't personally driven for those two races, then then that's not going to be a good goal for them. Like uh, They need to sit down and think about which races they want to train for and let me know. I can, I can give some guidance to that conversation. But at the end of the day, they have to be the ones that are uh, figuring out which events that they're going to really be pumped up for. And I think what Andrew said makes a lot of sense. I think athletes are going to be a lot more excited about setting goals for winning races versus mid packing races, you know? So if you can figure out which races are going to suit an athlete the best, then, then those, yeah, those should probably be the the races that they target if they've got a shot to win those. And then another thing I was going to mention was sometimes when you're thinking about goal events, you've got some, sometimes it's more flexible and sometimes it's more rigid. So I know when I was younger and trying to make the world's team for cyclocross every year, there's like selection deadlines. And so, uh, it was kind of like my, my cyclocross season almost had to be structured a certain way because I needed to perform at certain races to make selections for future races. So if I went into those mid mid season races, not, not doing so good, it could have, it could make my season end shorter than what I wanted. So, that's another thing to think about is like, what, yeah, what events do I absolutely need to be in shape for? And then, and then you just work with athletes to figure out how, okay, how do we put all these pieces together?
1: Yeah. And I just want to throw out to Drew, you mentioned like, you know, some athletes, you know, might be more motivated by training for a race that they have a chance at winning. Um, but I think t- in today's race scene with gravel and ultra marathon style events come in, you know, becoming more popular. A lot of the events that people get motivated for are events that they're not even sure they can finish. And that's okay too. Like that, that can totally be, you know, your motivation is, you know, just this huge challenge that's sitting in front of you. Um, and, you know, kind of use that event prioritization sort of like to scare you into shape. You know, like you're so scared of, of the challenge ahead that you, you're kind of desperate to just do whatever it takes to, to get to that finish line. Um, and that's totally fine too. Even if it's a new, you know, uh, genre of racing or, or just venture in general, um, that's, that's a great motivator is just uh, an unknown challenge. Um, we see that pretty commonly today. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I can, I can
2: speak to that personally. Having <laughs> yeah, the, just done the that, double for that you, you just run. Like, I mean, yeah. yeah, there's like so many unknowns for that. <laughs> and i have no idea psychologically what's going on there but there's so many unknowns that it excites you i don't get that but it does and that there's some yeah there's some truth to that for sure so so we've talked a little bit about higher priority events but what
1: about lower priority events um, why why is it important to even you know show up to these events that are um, you know what we'd you know, we, we probably all use like the A, B, C, or you know, high, medium, and low categories c- categories for priority levels. Um, like, why 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 do we even have C level or
2: low level priority events on the calendar? Well, from what Dylan was saying earlier, it's because they it, it should just give us a confidence boost, right? Just go there and smash everybody, and then go to your big races with some confidence. <laughs> Isn't that the I guess that could be one reason. <laughs> just <I> was, kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, they,
0: they could totally be that. Um, one thing I was gonna say when you were you were talking about, you know, a lot of people with these big gravel events, or you know, could be a big mountain mountain bike event, or even a big road event. Um, who, you know, they're they're just trying to finish the race, uh, and the distance or the elevation or whatever is so daunting that they they don't know if they can finish. Um, I. I see a lot of those people, uh, a lot of times that event is, is one of the only ones in their calendar or, or, maybe it is the only one on their calendar. Um, a lot of people training for unbound they're they're like, I'm just training for unbound. That's it. Or, or Leadville. I'm just training for Leadville. That's it. I think that's a mistake. I think that you should have races leading up to an event like that, um, They probably shouldn't be as long as that race, but they, they, in an ideal world, you might even have, uh, have increasing distances of races. Like you might have a, if you're training for a hundred mile mountain bike race, you might have a, a a 50 mile race and then a a 70 mile race. And then you've got that hundred mile race. Um, I think with Unbound you can probably do that pretty easily because there's a lot of 50 mile gravel races. There's some 100 mile gravel races. There's some 130, 150 mile gravel races, and then you can, you know, and then you can try to do Unbound 200. Um, and and the reason why it's important is because you learn things when you race. Uh, for example, you learn how your gut reacts to your nutrition. I mean, you can practice your nutrition in training. Um, but it can, things can happen during racing, uh, that you don't expect. Like maybe, you know, uh, maybe you're so nervous that you forget to eat, or maybe you're going so hard that your, your gut isn't, isn't liking what you're putting into it, which normally it's fine in training. Um, you know, practicing preparation the night before, um, I, I think even easing the pre-race nerves if you've already done 10 races this year and this isn't your first race, you're a lot less nervous the night before than if you're lining up at Unbound and you haven't been on the starting line all year.
3: Yeah, so I, I kinda like to boil it down to three main things, and this kind of touches on some of the stuff Dylan's already said. Um the first thing is is feedback. So, you know, if we have a low priority event, like a C event, or more likely a B event that's you know, after you've already had some good training in your legs, it can have one of two results. Either one, you can kind of face that really race-specific intensity that's maybe similar to your A event, and you can say, like, hey, I felt deficient here, or hey, I felt this was a limiter. And then we still have time to, to address that in the training. Because sometimes, you know, the training maybe doesn't have the outcome that we expect. Or maybe we discover holes in one's fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, alternatively, You know, or I should say, on the other hand, it could have the opposite effect where it gives the athlete confidence and it's kind of an indication that like, Hey, this is working. Um, you know, I have some confidence here and like, let's keep going. Um, the second thing is, um, it's, I think it's good to just have that super race specific intensity and also for some athletes, um, they're more externally motivated And so it's an opportunity to get in a really, really hard day. Um, So, you know, if any of our listeners out there have done, you know, like a three by 20 session before, it's pretty hard. It's like mentally challenging, Um, you know, and for some people, they're really internally motivated and that's, that's easy for them to do. But for other athletes, um, you know, they're going to be able to go way harder in a race where they're, you know, fighting or trying to hang on or whatever the case is. Um, And that can be a really quality training day. Mm
1: -hmm. yeah so i think that's a good point so um that kind of brings up the next question is these low-level priority events um you know c events if you will what what is the goal i mean do you still recommend your athletes or do you yourself still go out there trying to win the race and do your best um versus like just treating it as a training effort and maybe not going as hard or you know doing something silly that's going to compromise your your result
3: so I think here's the big thing um is that with C events I don't think you know you should race as well as you can perhaps um and the goal maybe should be to win depending on how stiff the competition is or how well suited you are for the race but for a C event you're not tapering you're maybe training through that event because it's so far out from your goal and it's it's not your main goal so you don't want to compromise your training your overall training load for the sake of that race for a B race, maybe you you take a rest day and then you even have an opener session, but you don't do a full taper. So maybe, you know, with that, you're you're kind of getting a sense of like, you're one, you're working on your, your taper strategy and seeing how you do at, you know, different levels of fatigue, um, you know, allows you to play around a bit and it allows the opportunity to maybe reveal um, some of that fitness by taking the rest day and doing the openers. Um, but we're still not wanting to do a full taper such that, you know, we're our very best because at this point in the season, we, uh, you know, are not wanting to compromise training. We're still kind of training in service of a greater goal. And so on that event, maybe you can put a little bit more weight into your result because you've, you've done like sort of a micro taper, we can say, or like, a, you know, you're, you're, you're also further along in your training. Um, but I, I don't think at that point you should be discouraged if you don't win because you, you know, that you're not your very best. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Yeah. And that's usually how I approach with my athletes too, is, you know, I, I, I let them know ahead of time that the, the priority level, um, will affect their training. Um, so if it's a C level priority event, we're just replacing one of their high intensity efforts for that week with, with the race. And then wherever they come into it, that's, that's the, you know, the fitness and the, the, um, freshness they bring into that event. Um, B-level, you know, priority events, maybe we can schedule it where it's coming at the end of a rest week um, or, you know, if, if it's not, then maybe we'll take half a week to, you know, quote-unquote, uh, deload or, or taper into. Um, and then, you know, A-priority events, they're, you know, we're, we're taking probably a week of preparation leading into the event or more. Um, but it's all about the preparation coming into the event. Once the gun goes off, um, I try and tell them all, like, Race the event like you would race an event. Um, you know, we we might use C events to try new things as far as nutrition, or maybe you're trying out your gear setup for your A level event. Like they're they're definitely there to um, as as more preparatory. Um, but as far as like the race strategy goes, like I would never tell an athlete like don't give it your all and try and you know win the race. Still, um, you know, you maybe you try and take a different strategy. You know, maybe you want to practice your sprint that day. So you stay in the group until the end, instead of trying to solo off the front or something, if depending on what we're working on. Um, but I would never tell an athlete, like your result doesn't matter. And, and you can just, you know, line up and just go have fun or, or do whatever. Like, you know, it's still, it's still a race and we're still bike racers. Um, so, you know, once the gun goes off, kind of forget about what the preparation was going in and whatever you have on that day, you know, you try and utilize it to the best of your advantage. And, and I think a lot of racers actually benefit from their C races, um, in, in like overall strategy because they are coming in so much with, with, you know, with more fatigue than they would for a B or an A level event that they learn strategy in a different way because less, they don't ha- go ahead, your
2: less matches in their matchbox
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And it, and it learns, it teaches you quick to, to preserve those matches um, you know, you don't have the freshness to send, you know, five, six, seven flyers um, that have no hope of sticking. So, you know, you might be more, um, you know, incentivized to stay in the group or, you know, try and, you know, suck wheels and, and just try and, you know, not put your neck out. Um, or, or maybe you're, you know, like I said, you're just going to, you know, hold out until the, the sprint at the end or something and surprise yourself. Um you know, whereas like with a, with a level fitness and coming in you know a lot of times everyone's so fresh that right from the beginning they feel good and they feel invincible um you know so you kind of you kind of take a little bit different strategy or uh you know approach into the the racing
2: mm-hmm. yeah anytime um, you're talking about tapering you're what you're trying to balance is this this balance between fitness and form and so for a c or, for a c level race like Fitness is the priority, so you're not trying to really even think about form that much. B race, maybe you're like meeting somewhere in the middle where you're not really losing fitness, but you're not really like coming into it with great form. But something about the A races that's really important is when you taper for an A race, you're actually losing fitness um, because of how long the taper is. And so if you were to do that numerous, numerous times throughout the season, you're going to lose so much fitness from so many tapers that it's it's not going to be worth that worth it that's why we're that's why you have to limit the amount of a races you put on the calendar because if you yeah you're just going to lose too much fitness um and that's a good thing for the few times you do want those a races to pop up because when your fitness might drop a little bit but it's worth it because your form is going to be up so much from that that you're going to have a better performance because of it right yeah and what you're referring to there drew is not not necessarily the
1: the tapering the week of but you're talking about the, the build maybe the uh you know two four weeks leading into that event where you're you're really starting to drop down the volume and building up the intensity um so it's not necessarily like you know the, that you're losing fitness throughout that week because you're probably going to make up that fitness during the race you're going to get a you know fitness bump from the race effort itself but it's the whole build into it and that's where like the periodization of a whole season comes into play, and you know wh- why it's so critical to prioritize your events in such a way where the, the season can be structured uh, so that you're setting yourself up for success on those race days um, or those a days because uh, you know it it does it, it there is a sacrifice in your overall um, fitness in the lead up to the event and it sounds weird to say that like it sounds like why why would you sacrifice fitness if you're trying to uh, you know peak. Um, but it's 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 allowing your body the proper adaptations and rest and recovery, um, and also pushing your limits as as far as how hard you can go during your training sessions. And in order to do that, you have to be more fresh coming into each of those workouts. Um, so yeah, so over the course of a maybe two month span, you're you're losing quite a bit of overall fitness and and um, you know in endurance and uh, you know uh, durability uh, as an athlete too. So it takes some time to build that back up after, after the events over. And that's why like Dylan, you were talking about the lifetime series, you know, it's, it's challenging because there's six events across six months. So you cannot, there's no way you can come into the first event peaking and carry that peak for six months. It's just not possible. Um, and for you, like, you know, you probably had to decide like, what were you going to peak for, uh, you know, a race like, uh, uh, you know, crusher, um, or, big sugar, you know, like duration wise, those are probably pretty similar, you know, five ish hours. Um, but the fact that it goes unbound, then crusher, then Leadville, like that's three months in a row, you're not going to carry that peak for three months. So you want to give yourself enough Mm -hmm. time to, to, you know, to build back fitness after unbound and then build back fitness again for the end of the season at big sugar. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And we, we're not going to get into periodization in today's show. That's just a whole another topic in itself. What, what are the different, you know um, you know, period cycles look like. Um, so we're going to save that for another show. Um, but I think, I think that's a pretty good, pretty good wrap on uh, this topic for today of just, you know, what it looks like to prioritize events across a season. Um, so let's get into this, uh, this listener question for everyone who's been sticking around. oh yeah, Andrew, you got one more thing.
3: Yeah. One more thing that I think is worth, right. worth addressing, you know, to just kind of clarify Drew's point and I'll make this quick. I, I think of fitness, like building fitness and the training you're doing is building potential, right? So like the more we train, the more potential we build. And then resting reveals that potential, you know, with the goal being performance. So being the fittest you can be is not necessarily going to equate to performance. Like you could build up a 200 CTL, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to race better than if you had a one hundred and fifty CTL, and so you know it, it's it's a balance. But I think that that was worth clarifying. Yeah, that was some great good point. stuff. Yeah.
0: Also, 200 and 150 are some real high numbers.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah, I like to set my my FTC really
1: low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Hey, Andrew, do you want to read the listener question that we have this week?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I hope uh, the gentleman who, who emailed in doesn't mind that I read his question there. Um, but he said, um, I work and have a family, which means I'm not able to get long blocks of training. Typically, I can get in the gym. It's dark and cold here at the moment around 8.30 PM and do an hour and 30 minutes zone two. I realize base should be in big blocks, but Wondered if I did a 1.5 hour session before work and a 1.5 hour session in the evening would give similar training effects. I know it won't have the same, but if it's the best I can manage, um, I can find three to four hours one morning at the weekend. So um, to kind of boil this question down, I think what the what the listener is asking is: are two you know split up 90 minute sessions equivalent? to one 3 hour session. Yeah. Yeah. And what so, do we think? <laughs> I had
0: a whole video on this and uh I probably should have reviewed what I said in the video before the podcast. Um but from from what I remember, there's not really good research addressing this specific question. There's some research that has a 2 a day protocol um But they're more so doing the two-a-day protocol to see how the body responds to uh, training in sort of a fasted state or a low glycogen state. Because they're using the first workout to, um, you know, deplete the glycogen stores so that they can train in low glycogen in the second workout. And so it had them doing some really weird things. Like, for example, there were a lot of studies that would – or there were at least a few studies that had – um, this this pattern where they would take a rest day and then train and rest and train and rest and train and rest and train. And rest and train. So it's, it's like on, off, on, off, on, off, which I don't know anyone who trains like that versus somebody who trains every day. And the way that they balanced out the volume between these two groups is that on the training days, they did two workouts and then on the rest days, they did no workouts. Um, really weird. And then also... They would have them do a uh, an endurance ride first to deplete glycogen stores, and then perform high intensity with low glycogen stores, which is the exact opposite of how I would have somebody do it if I was if I was coaching them and they needed to do a two a day workout. I would have them do if they had a high intensity on the calendar that day. I would have them do high intensity first, followed by a low intensity ride later. Um, unless the low intensity ride in the morning is so low intensity and so low volume that it's not going to stress them for whatever workout they have later that day. So I think the conclusion that I came to is that the research is, is a little bit inconclusive on this, but if, if we're making the argument that doing two a day workouts is beneficial because you're doing the second workout in a low glycogen state, which seems to have some benefits then you could make that same argument for just doing it all in one continuous block. In fact, there was a study that, that tested whether or not having the second workout in closer proximity to the first workout was more or less beneficial, and they found that it was in fact more beneficial to have the second workout closer in proximity to the first one. And so you can't have two workouts in closer proximity to one another than just combining the two together together. And essentially doing them back to back by just doing one long ride. Hopefully that made sense.
3: Yeah, you know, in in I think it, it's gonna depend on like what the goal of your workouts is, like what you're working on, where like what phase of training you're in, right? So I think this listener was specifically referring to base where the majority of your rides are gonna be, you know, zone two aerobic work. And so I, I think with that sort of work um, in order to get an adaptive stimulus, ideally, we'd ride for a really long time. And we know that things happen deep into a three- or four-hour ride because, you know, and Siler talks a lot about this. If you look at the cardiac drift over the course of that ride, you can see pretty clearly that the body is getting progressively stressed as mm-hmm. the ride goes on. And what does stress do? Stress provides an adaptive signal. However, if this isn't possible that's fine. Um, I think doing more overall volume, the two 90 minute sessions as opposed to the one three hour session is better than just doing a single 90 minute session or, um, you know, at the extreme end, you know, reorganizing your life in such a way that you could maybe fit in a three hour ride, but then you have to go right back to work. You don't get to eat or shower or maybe you're sacrificing sleep. So it all has to be balanced with one's lifestyle. And my perspective is, is that you can only do as much training as you can recover from. And so what this means is if you have 10 hours of riding per week, you need to budget maybe 14 or 15 hours of total free time to then account for you know, getting in proper nutrition, you know, making good meals, sleeping maybe a little extra, having time to kind of unwind after your workout, you know, providing that buffer between, you know, your your training and your work. Because um, just going nonstop, it, it's, it's a very tricky balance. It's sort of like playing Jenga. And the more you increase your volume for a fixed amount of time in your lifestyle, it's like removing a block. You know, like every time you add more training, you're removing another block, which means that that Jenga tower is getting closer and closer to toppling. And what toppling means for the athlete is that, Um, you know, they go into a state of, of overtraining or they get fired from their job or they don't spend enough time with their partner. So they get divorced, you know, and so the consequences are, are, are huge potentially.
2: Yeah. That's where my head immediately went after you read the question was, is it, would it be better to do two 90 minute sessions? Well, yeah, but practically probably not. Like, I can't tell you how many times. Uh, because I've probably never actually prescribed somebody to do a 90 minute session in the morning and a 90 minute session at night. Like that's just practically that would be extremely rare. I think Um, unless his job's like pretty low key. I mean, if you're thinking a normal nine to five job, which it sounds like that's what he's dealing with. If he can only ride on the weekends, he can only get in his long rides on the weekends. How much are you really going to gain from waking up at 5am or 530 to get in 90 minutes in the morning? Get home, ride ninety minutes. You're not even eating dinner till eight or nine p.m. You know, like that's just going to put a lot of burden and stress on, on on an athlete. And so, just from a practical standpoint, I would be very hesitant to do that. Um, to to prescribe that as a coach to an athlete, I think maybe there are other ways that gains could be made. Um, something that I do often prescribe is two days where the morning session is like a short gym session or a short run. Cause it's a 30 minute run is, is could, could generate a good amount of stimulus um, in way less time than a 90 minute ride. And so that's one like alternative that I'll do personally and with athletes that I do, or, you know, like a gym session in the morning, cause it just takes less time. Um, when you're doing endurance rides, they take a long time and to try to do that in the morning before work is maybe ask it a lot.
1: Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, I think that's going to do it for today. Um, Covered a lot of good stuff here. Um, Hopefully that listener question was exciting for you all. Um, If you stuck around till the end because you really wanted to hear our take on that question, uh, send us some more. We'd love to hear that and, Um, include some more questions on the show Uh, that's it for this week All right, folks thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox podcast, like I said at the beginning you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled The Matchbox Podcast links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes tune in next week for another endurance training related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event catch y'all soon, let's go!